I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a weekly podcast produced by Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, CURE. Margaret's story is the mother to a 15-year-old supergirl, Josie. Josie has a Cardi syndrome, a rare disorder that causes intractable seizures as well as other physical and developmental disabilities. Margaret is also professor of history and associate dean at DePaul University and an incredible parent advocate for children with disabilities and medical complexity. I was first introduced to Margaret through one of Adelaide's therapists as a go-to resource for all our special needs parenting questions, and she has since provided us with a wealth of information. We are talking with her today about how to improve the quality of special education programs for kids with severe epilepsy. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Margaret. Of course, I'm happy to. So excited to have you here. So you wrote this incredible blog for the New York Times several years ago about the need for special needs education to go beyond the IEPs, the individual educational programs in the integrated classrooms. Explain um, your thought process and your concern in sort of the standard available education system. Sure. Um, a self-contained school is a school that's purpose-built for students who have disabilities. And it's a public school. And this is really a rare thing. And Josie, by the time Josie was able to attend a self-contained school for kids with disabilities, she was seven. So we'd seen the models, and she's very severely disabled by her syndrome. But my desire was to find a place that would suit her and support her in ways that the self-contained classrooms that she'd had up to that point really hadn't been able to do. When she was in preschool, it was fine. But when she hit first grade, it was devastatingly segregated. Um, in the classroom where she had to go in the public schools in the city, where we lived at the time, um, she was part of a group of students who rolled in, literally rolled in through a separate entrance. They could not even go through the same door as all the rest of the kids. They rolled into that entrance, they stayed in that classroom, they sometimes got to go out for school assemblies where they were rolled out, pushed into the front row, pushed back out, went into their self-contained classroom. And this was always wrong to me. I just felt um, that this was a terrible segregation of my child. And I knew that she could not be educated alongside typical peers because of the severity of her needs. But I also knew she could learn, mm -hmm. that she loved learning, that she needed to be stimulated and challenged mm -hmm. in all the ways that other kids do. And what I found was in this little corner of a school, she was in daycare. Mm -hmm. They just did things like make Rice Krispie treats. They weren't teaching her in a real robust way. And so I'd heard about a school in Evanston through a colleague of mine, actually, DePaul, whose son went there. And we went and visited it and said, that's what we want for her because she rolls through the front door. The whole school's built for them. There's no place in that school that a kid can't go. And all of their peers are disabled, but they have peers who mm -hmm. love them. They have friends. It's rich. There's a curriculum. She's got dignity. Her disability isn't a thing to tuck away. And most importantly to me, her disability isn't used as a way to train other people how to be sensitive to disability. Right. And I think that, you know, that's such an important point is that um, when you're talking about integrated classrooms, 
is it the best for the able-bodied kids or is it the best right. situation for the disabled kids? And you would hope that in, in the best case scenario that both groups are exactly. getting something from it's, that. Exactly. Uh, so you're talking about the um, the self-contained classes for, you know, mostly for these severely disabled kids. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what in your mind sort of quantifies that? What is that? It's really hard. Yeah. I mean, that's going to depend kid to kid. Um, one of the things that I think is problematic though right now is that ideally we have a spectrum of services for kids with disabilities. You know, I made, I went to great pains in that article to, to say that I am not uh, denigrating uh, inclusion as an approach. For some children, it is just exactly the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely laud the parents who fought tooth and nail to make that happen. And they were, they were pioneers. Mm -hmm. And so I want that full spectrum. But for some children, they're either their medical needs or the complexity of their developmental needs, their physical needs are so significant mm -hmm. that to really be able to have them fully access an education, which is what they are promised by federal law, mm -hmm. they need the structures and the trained personnel to do it. And we cannot do that in a cost-effective way always by segregating people out into the mainstream classroom. You, you really do need this support that's focused in one place sometimes. I think you, you bring up such an interesting point in you know, the array of disabilities mm -hmm. and the array of options. You think of your, um, your typical able-bodied minded child and you still have educational options. Oftentimes within the public school system, you could you know, mm -hmm. have them go to a Montessori school or mm -hmm. you know, the traditional school, school, an IB or, or, or mm -hmm. whatever. You know, there's all of these programs that you can pick the best learning style for your able-bodied minded child. But when it comes to your disabled children, those same options aren't necessarily there depending on your school district. Right. So what is the other side of that argument? Why, mm -hmm. why aren't there more options for parents of special needs kids to try and customize their child's education? Well, I think there's two reasons. Um, one of them is um, about money. Mm, of course. This is expensive. It's expensive to educate children who are complicated. And the mandate that you do it is a federal mandate, but the funding to support it is not always available. And so we have a real disparity, a terrible, tragic disparity, as we do in all public education, for children who are impoverished in poor neighborhoods who will just simply not be able to access this. We had the great privilege to be able to pick ourselves up and move to a community that is dedicated to this kind of thing and has the resources to support it. So there's that. There's a question of finance, financial need, like how much it costs. Mm -hmm. But there's also um, a philosophy that developed pretty strongly in the 90s um, that it, we don't want to segregate people with disabilities. And I get it. I totally get it. It's part of an inclusion movement that Josie has benefited from in so many ways. If we think about what the world was like in 1960 for children like Josie, if she would have even lived, and I doubt she would have lived, but if she had been alive, she would have been institutionalized mm -hmm. and much less had access to school. Okay. So as parents advocated early on, really for access to education, a lot for children with Down syndrome. Um, they changed attitudes, they changed laws, they opened things up, and we moved toward a more inclusive system. 
But that inclusion may be overcorrected. Like that can go a little too far. Interesting. And we can over-articulate that as the only way to do it. So I always found it ironic that people who are very, very committed to that way of doing almost to the exclusion of anything else will say that you're not being educated. You can't be you can't have a good life if you're not educated with typical peers. And I just thought, why? What does that say to us about the dignity and richness of the lives of people with disabilities. My daughter had taught me immeasurable things that I'd never would have learned if I'd had a typical daughter. Do I wish her suffering didn't exist? Absolutely. But at the same time, the idea that these children can't have relationships with each other, that they can't learn, that they aren't happy when they're only educated with children with disabilities, it's just not true. Yeah. You know, you have the self-contained, and you know she has you know the the specialized education piece, but you know which is all important. But at the same time, she still does have a lot of medical needs. Absolutely, she likely has seizures at mm -hmm. school. I'm she assuming. certainly does. And so, how is the school better equipped to manage that mm -hmm. than? Um, a typical integrated school? In my experience, and there certainly will be exceptions to this, but in my experience, what's great is that because our school has got a therapeutic bent, mm. um, the orientation towards families is different. The orientation towards families is more uh, that you're a partner in this project rather than this outsider who's trying to tell the experts how to do things. And that's essential, as you well know, when you're working with a, any kind of healthcare provider, you need that partnership. And most of these kids are getting healthcare provided at school. Mm -hmm. So they're both an education provider and healthcare providers and therapists. And that therapeutic reality means that you're able to explain, like for Josie, Josie regularly has seizures that are gonna be longer than five minutes. Mm -hmm. If we were gonna look at a, you know, a standard protocol for the use of a rescue medication, five minute long seizure that you give diastat. Right. If we did that for Josie, she'd be having diastat all day long. We don't do that for Josie. Josie can have a seizure that lasts 15 minutes and it's okay. I know it's okay, the doctors know it's okay, and the nursing staff and the teachers there learn how to take care of her within the context. I give them the parameters mm -hmm. for what is her seizure plan. And that's what we set up every year is a seizure plan. And that plan is highly individualized. And they know to call me or Jonathan at whatever moment is the kind of trigger point where I'm like, well, then, then we do need to go into some mm -hmm. other protocol. But because of that, they're not afraid. They don't treat, treat her like she's you know, a China doll. Mm -hmm. um, and she's able to have a normal day and she lives her life and she has seizures every day of her life, yeah. pretty much. Sometimes she doesn't, but so it's, it's wonderful to be able to partner with a team yeah. and to feel that they understand your kid and you're able to, to uh, shape that. And at the same time, they then trust that you're open to being shaped too. Mm -hmm. And so that team helps me understand how to communicate with Josie better or helps me understand certain things that are going on at school that I don't know about. Yeah. She has a life that I don't know anything about, which is exciting. How exciting yes. is that? It's awesome. It's awesome. I want her to not have my eyes on her all the time. Right. Yeah. You know, that's a great gift. Yeah. So how can parents find out what schools are available to them, where that, you know, if they do have the financial means that they can move into that neighborhood or... Um, or if they a, don't, 
assert the right to get it, their kid yes. there, right? So what, you know, yeah. how do you how do you find out if that school exists? It's really hard. It's really hard. And it depends on where you live. Now, in mm-hmm. some places in the country, the process is really transparent. But in a lot of places, it's just not. And again, this gets to the way that um, budgets hide behind philosophy. So mm-hmm. that the budgetary desire not to invest in there in that way mm-hmm. um, can sometimes cloak itself in the idea that this is what's best for the kid. Mm-hmm. And so to get around that, you need to talk to other parents. Right. Almost always, our best information is going to come from other parents. Hence our how yes. we met and our, yes. <laughs> our yes. friendship. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. And is. how I learned about the school was through a friend. And how I learned how to advocate for her there was through friends and the example of friends. Yeah. So fellow travelers are our great resource. And mm-hmm. I, that's my advice would be to start asking questions. And if you're stonewalled, just keep asking questions. Yeah. This is probably, a ma- I can't even imagine a massive undertaking because this building needs to be accommodated for right. Right. all sorts of, of special needs equipment and that's yep. right. So this is, a, this is a long process to get a school like this mm-hmm. up and running. Um, but what options are available if there are a group of parents that are like, you know, we're... Band together? Yeah, that we need mm-hmm. this. How, how do they lobby for that? Well, you know, it's funny because Josie's school was originally invented by parents. They founded it in their house in oh. 1954. Oh, my word. Right. And it somewhere in the next 10 to 15 years, the school district said, oh, we'll take that and help you with it. So sometimes what it takes is that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You find like-minded parents and you figure out if you can make something happen. But I also think it's reasonable to start to talk to your local elected officials, to your local school board, find your school board member and say, have you ever considered this as a possibility? Um, what's interesting is that sometimes these are solutions that can, in fact, be budget-wise, but they don't assume it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that talking to your local officials, talking to fellow parents, looking at other models, coming and visiting other schools, um, some of these kinds of schools are run as consortium-based enterprises so that district, multiple districts will band together to fund a school that kids from different districts come to so that they can share the challenge, the budgetary Mm -hmm. challenge, and create a place that works for these kids. So it's always possible to make it happen, but it is hard and it does require dedication. And I always say, you know, it's hard because so many, I mean, if you're in this situation, you're parenting a child like this, your bandwidth is not always there. I I can't even imagine sitting down and trying to exactly to create a school out of nothing it's 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 overwhelming it is overwhelming and i think that the the problem is that this is unfortunately often where we are Mm -hmm. which is that the people who know best how that what's needed are in the least um uh flexible place to make it happen and so if you can't do everything you can do a little thing try to find an advocate who you can talk to try to get the idea out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can't do it yourself, there might be someone else who's in a position who can. Um, but it is challenging, it's a reality. Now, talk to me about you know, what, what is Josie's typical day at school? What oh, does that yeah. look like? It's what are the so programs fun. that are available <laughs> to her? What makes it different than mm-hmm. 
than being in an integrated school? Well, the day starts with everybody coming to school, obviously. Some kids are dropped off by their parents. Some, pe some kids come on the bus. So we all come in the front door, which is important, right? Yeah. Um, through the front door. And they go to their various classrooms, and then they have a normal day of schedule. So they have the range, depending on their age, if they're in preschool or if they're at, um, in high school, depending on their age group, um, they have the range of appropriate curricular structure. So Josie has language arts, she has social science, she has, you know, arts, drama, theater. They have a hugely rich curriculum. She changes subjects hour to hour. Oh she has goodness. adaptive PE, so she has PE every day, which is adapted to her needs, and they're fantastic. And the ratio is really low. I mean, we're talking about um, a teacher and four um, paraprofessionals in a classroom of six students. Wow. Right. And so that kind of a setting is the kind of setting that can allow you to support a child like Josie. And so I'll just give you an example. Um, in the last three years, she's made incredible strides with communication. So Josie's nonverbal and non-ambulatory, which means she can't walk by herself. She can use a gay trainer. Um, but it's very, it's limited. Mm -hmm. um, but in uh, her verbal communication has never developed at all. But she has been able to develop some eye gaze um, picking pictures, eye gaze mm -hmm. strategies around communication, which has been super. Um, and a lot of that I attribute to the introduction of epidiolects. Um, when she started to take that medicine, um, we saw real changes in her cognitive function. Um, and her teachers worked laboriously to teach her how to do this eye gaze system. And then I, I said, do you think we could try now? with a device. And we tried other devices. Her disorder means that she's not really able to functionally use her hands. She won't, she doesn't really want to pick anything like a switch. She, she'll do it, but it's not what her go-to at all. And I said, can we try again with another device? And they said, sure. I said, well, I'm going to take her down to the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab and let's see what we can do. Evaluated her for an eye gates device. We did a trial. She took to it like water just because they taught her the strategies. So it's set up, it's got a little thing to get your eyes mm -hmm. calibrated and you pick a picture and it speaks for you. Wow. Right. So her teacher, her speech therapist, her OT at school. And all of those therapies are provided within the absolutely. school. Absolutely. And they're a part of her IEP. And those people have been with her since she was seven. I mean, they know her very well, she, you know. And are they employed by the school? Mm -hmm. By the school district, mm-hmm. And so they structured a trial, mm -hmm. figured out how to see if she could use it. She clearly could use it. We pitched it to the insurance company, crossed our fingers, <laughs> and uh, amazingly it was approved. And she's had it since September in school. And they've integrated it across the curriculum. And she's using it. And she's using it in ways that aren't just to pick things. So I'll give you an example. We were uh, talking to her dad who was visiting uh, his mom in England on the iPad. You know, we do FaceTime. And I had the device up. And she was, I'd set it up so she could start to say some phrases that are related to being happy. And she kept saying, this is fun. This is fun. This is fun. And then she navigated out of that to another weird screen with a bunch of animals. I'm like, oh, that must be from school. And she kept saying lobster, lobster, lobster. And I was like, what is she talking about lobster? We joked, oh, did you know Nana loves lobster? We have no idea why she's talking about lobster. Um, off we go. Uh -huh. And then she starts, he, her dad says, I want you to find the crab. Is there a crab? And she won't find the crab, but there's a crab right there. And I'm like, well, you know about crabs. 
crabs have pinchers. You know, sometimes when we're crabby, mm-hmm. we're crabby because we're, our words are like pinchers. Uh-huh. And the next morning, she's 15. She doesn't want to get out of bed anymore. <laughs> and she's moaning and groaning and complaining and cranky, cranky, cranky. We get her to breakfast, set up the device. It's on the table next to breakfast. She starts looking at it. I set it up for the breakfast panel. She gets out of there. She goes back to the animal thing. And the first thing she picks is crab, crab, <laughs> crab. I'm like, are you telling me you're crabby? Are you crabby? And how like incredible that like, right? your nonverbal daughter, you're able, exactly. she's able to communicate with exactly. you and you can communicate with exactly. her. And that, the, the, the therapy and the training that that exactly. takes, it couldn't have happened in an integrated Never. school. It would not have happened. It, just the resources aren't there. And the time and the dedication and the expertise, it could not have happened. And moreover, everybody, me included, and I have a lot of faith in her, uh, didn't know for sure she could do it. Yeah. And there she is, trapped. Yeah. And we're like, well, can you do it? And I'm so literal. I have no way of thinking about that lobster comment that she made. When I get her to school that morning, I said, oh, we used it this weekend. The device was great. And he said, the pair pro said, oh, did, did you notice how much she likes our lesson on the coral reef? And I said, oh, oh that's why gosh. that's there. And he said, yeah, you know, her favorite animal is the lobster. And I oh, thought my goodness. what I needed to do was to go find a lobster video, yes. <laughs> weird as that is, yes. right? Uh, and say, yeah, let's talk about lobsters. Because what she was trying to do was tell her daddy that she had learned about lobsters at school which is what a kid does, right? Yeah. Right. And so oh, there's these word. moments which just take my breath away because yeah. I think I underestimate you every day. Yes. And what we all can do when we have a setting like that is not make that mistake. Yeah. We train ourselves. But if she's stuck in a room with three other people and that's that, it's just it's, it's not, not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Mm-mm. It absolutely isn't. And, right. You know, and I and I do think that, you know, the the integrated classrooms probably have their purpose for some children who are, you know, higher functioning and who can gain from that experience. For sure. And, and, but for, for our kiddos that Mm -hmm. are going to need a lot more help. I mean, I didn't even know that something like this was was possible. Yeah, exactly. I know that Josie blossomed when she went to school and I had this terrible time thinking of her riding on the bus. But for kids with epilepsy, this is also an issue. Mm-hmm. Like, for her to ride on the bus, she has to have somebody on the bus who can administer diastat. Yeah. And that took some advocacy. Mm-hmm. So she could ride the bus. There are these kinds of things that you need to push for. But at the same time, if you can make it work even for just an hour a day or two hours a day, um, they have an identity beyond your um, caring for them. And this is tough. Like, when you're constantly a caregiver, we do circumscribe their existence, right? Well, and I think more to your point, um, you know, when Josie is in the self-contained school, you get to focus on her abilities and what she can learn versus being in an integrated school where everything is focused on her disability and and getting her different. Right. And getting her to more of a place. Well, she's never going to be in that place. Right. I mean, and this is for me. I'm not. I'm not shocked by that. Right. This doesn't disturb me. I'm. I'm 
I've long since been disturbed and upset that she has these losses. Mm -hmm. But that's not about meeting her where she is and helping her be a fully expressed human being. The best within, version of her. Absolutely. And having her be happy. When, when Josie was little and things were really, really bad, I mean, you know, she was having, you know, tons of seizures every day. She couldn't do anything. She could barely sit up. She couldn't smile. You know, it was horrible, as you well know. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking and terrible. And I remember Jonathan and I looking at each other and saying, you know, if she can be happy, that's what we want. Mm -hmm. I'm not praying for seizures to stop anymore. I'm not praying for her to walk. I'm not praying for the, I'm it's praying for her to be life. happy. And that's been the thing that's made me move in everything I've done, every point of advocacy I've made. It's about how can we have these children fully uh, experience happiness in life? And if that means less drugs, then it's less drugs. Mm -hmm. If that means a self-contained classroom, then that's what we're gonna do. And I'm, I'm not so concerned about whether or not she fits in or she's like other kids. She ain't like other kids. Yeah. She's her own special version of the of a kid. Mm -hmm. And 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 that Josie World's okay. You know, it's a great place in a lot of ways. It's not easy. You know, I don't put all roses on it and say, oh, this is just fantastic, because it's not. Yeah. Uh, but within that reality, you can carve out these places of joy mm -hmm. and um, and real a recognition of her as a person, mm -hmm. not just the subject of our constant anxiety. Right. Margaret, thank you so much for coming on. This conversation was incredible and I learned so, so much and I hope everyone watching and listening did too. So I just, I appreciate you taking oh, your time. It's my great pleasure. Thank you for doing this whole series. It's wonderful. Thank you for all the work that you and Miguel have done for Cure. It's amazing. And, you know, kiss Adelaide for me. She's such a love and you know you're always in my thoughts. Thank I know you it's so not much. an easy road. It sucks, but it does. We appreciate having people like you around. Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. you. The devastating effects of epilepsy on children's development and education is just not acceptable. We need a cure before more children suffer the consequences of severe epilepsy. That is why for the past 20 years, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy has worked with researchers around the globe to fund patient-centered research focused on finding that cure. Help us today by donating to Cure at cureepilepsy.org. All donations, no matter the size, have the potential to make a huge impact on children with severe epilepsy. Thanks so much. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.